Salam Aleikum. That's all the Arabic I know, but I figured I'd start out that way. <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, disappoint completely here tonight. <laughs> Before I say much else, let me uh, thank Pastor Berger for allowing me to have this opportunity. And uh, just say, as I have many times, and I have to keep saying it, what a, what a wonder, wonder it is to be able to be a part of this church in any way, shape, or form. And we're very pleased, even though the circumstances are not what we would prefer, but we are certainly pleased that under these circumstances we're here, okay? And that you have taken us in uh, in such a wonderful way. And I want to thank every one of you. Everyone has just been so uh, wonderful to us during this whole time, and uh, I hope we can give back just a little bit. If you have your Bible, would you please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2. When you find it, I want you to look up at me and smile. <laughs> then I'll know we'd be ready to move on. <laughs> if you're not smiling, I can't move on. We'll get, keep your finger there in First Thessalonians chapter two, and uh, I want to uh, want to give you a little piece of a story that I came across this week that I think gives a lot of parallels to what we're talking about during this month and the rest of our lives here as well uh, as a church. Uh, this is not directly about missions per se, uh, but I think the story itself lends itself to some very interesting biblical ideas. Until he was seven years old. Daniel Solomon slept sitting up. This wasn't because upright was a particularly comfortable position or, become, or because some exotic medical condition prevented him from straightening at the waist. It was just because Daniel didn't have another option. For the first seven years of his life, he lived in a crib in an orphanage in Romania with another child his age. During the day, one set of adults would feed and clean Daniel and his bunkmate Niku and the other 100 or so orphans who lived in the same room. During the night, there was a graveyard crew, but even though Daniel was there for seven and a half years, he can't tell you the name of any of the adults who took care of him. He didn't know any of them well enough to say. He also can't tell you how much, about, how, about how much time he passed, or about how he passed his time very much, what he thought about. He didn't go to school. He didn't go outside. He only left his crib to eat and go to the bathroom, so there wasn't a lot of material for him, for him to draw from. Samuel said this, there was one window where you could see the city, and I don't remember exactly when I started thinking about it, but you kind of started to think about it. Like, what is that? You'd see all these car lights and all the lights in the city, and I think I started thinking about, what is that? And why am I here and not there? I want you to remember that part of the story, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in, in a few moments. But I want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, we won't read the whole chapter, although the context would, would be helpful to us. So I'll just go down through a little bit of what's going on here. Paul's writing, of course, to a church, a church in the place called Thessalonica, where he had been on his second missionary journey. He wasn't there very long for a number of reasons. He had been persecuted, and this chapter tells, talks about that. He had been persecuted in the, in the city of Philippi as he evangelized there. And yet, even through the persecution, he was able to establish a church, win some people to Christ, baptize them, and move on. And as he gets to Thessalonica, some of the same kinds of things happen. Uh, here, at least, he wasn't beaten and thrown into prison, but he was uh, chased after. They came to try to find him, and he was able to get away. But while he was there for a short time, again, he had an impact. 
He was able to influence some people to come to Jesus Christ. And we know not great um, amounts of things about that whole situation. The Bible talks about it in Acts chapter 17, how the, the story of how it unrolled and everything. But we don't have all of the details, but we have, uh, interestingly, two books, two letters from the Apostle Paul written to that church. Uh, that is uh, pretty, pretty, uh, uh, pretty important, I would say. That makes it a very important story for us to understand, certainly. Uh, in his chapter here, he talks about how he dealt with them while he was there. Again, a lot of that information we don't have in Acts chapter 17. The narration of what actually took place there is pretty short and kind of uh, pithy and, and to the point and move on. But here in First Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks a little bit more about that. Like, for example, in verse 7, he says, We were gentle among you. And he uses the example of a, a mother nursing her child and cherishing her child, caring for her child. We treated you like a mother treats the baby. He said, that's the way we came to you. We didn't come in with, with guns blazing. We came in with a message of hope. Some people came after us and persecuted us. And he says in verse 8, he said, you remember our labor and travail, laboring day and night, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. And we preached unto you the gospel of God. He said, your witnesses in verse 10, and God also, how holily and justly and unblamely we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. First he talks about a, a nursing mother caring for the child. And now he goes on to talk about how a father takes care of the children. And we have an image here. We have a picture here of someone dealing with lost people as though they're needy children. <laughs> And they are, aren't they? My mind goes back to that story of, of that uh, young Romanian fellow, Daniel. He didn't have any of that for the first seven and a half years of his life. As I make a comparison to my own life, it's very stark. The first seven years of my life were filled with a loving home and many, many, many opportunities to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it was when I was seven years old that I made profession in Christ. So at the same time that Daniel is finally getting out of this crib, and I'll tell you a little more about that story in a moment, but at the same time of his life that he comes out of that crib and has something new in his life finally, uh, I'm accepting Christ as Savior, having had the benefit of hearing about it since I was born. What a, what a stark contrast. I never had to sit and stare out a window all day long wondering what was going on out there. Though we weren't wealthy people, my parents still, still took us out of the house and, and, and took us places and showed us things and we played and, and just had a normal, what we would call a normal life. What a stark contrast. What a stark contrast it is when we stop and think about the situation that most of the world is in. And we don't think about it a lot of times as Americans, how blessed we are. We do, in a sense, but we don't really maybe carry it to that degree. Maybe we don't stop and think of the fact that they're sitting somewhere off in the darkness. And they may see that somewhere, or, or kind of have an idea that somewhere out there, there's something better. There's a, there's a light. They may not know what it is. They can't identify it. But they know that somewhere out there, they've heard something. They know that there's something that would be much more satisfying to their soul. 
Paul goes on and talks about these folks and, and how, how, how they are such a blessing to him. In verse number 12, he says, we, we ask that, that you would walk worthy of God, who's called you into his kingdom and his glory. For this cause, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectively worketh, worketh also in you the belief. For ye, brethren, uh, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them, for the, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. He's talking about the general persecution, and in particular the persecution of religion. <laughs> Paul brings up the persecution of religion here. But a lot of the Jews uh, were, were even even Christian Jews. We know this from the story. We know this from what the Bible tells us. A number of them were upset that the gospel was going out to Gentiles. And Paul here is in a, in a Gentile place. And he said, I didn't hold back with from you because of what, uh, what my brethren, according to the flesh, had to say about it. He didn't, I said, I didn't worry about that. I went because you needed to see the light. You needed to know the truth. You needed to be able to receive that which is not the word of man, but the word of God as it truly is. And so he went, notwithstanding even the religious persecution. And then in verse 17, he said, but we brethren being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And then he makes these comments, for what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. The story again of Daniel, the Romanian boy, you heard the first part of his life. And somewhere along the line, a family in America decided that they wanted to help someone out. They didn't really know who, but they wanted to adopt a child who really needed to be adopted uh, from somewhere in the world. And they began doing investigation. And somewhere along the way, they found uh, a picture of this particular orphanage in Romania. And uh, the faces of those children just stuck in their minds. And they began making preparations to go and see if they could adopt one of those children. I had the privilege when I was uh, still in Portugal of uh, making contact with a with a pastor over in Lithuania. Uh, it started out with a contact to get some cabins, some pre-built cabins that disassembled and we could reassemble, and we could get them cheaper from Lithuania. And if you know anything about geography, uh, it's way over there bordering Russia. In fact, the wood came from Russia. And then they would build these cabins and we could get it cheaper that way and transport it all the way to Portugal for cheaper than doing that than to buy it in Portugal or anywhere closer to us. It turned out to be that way. So when we found out about that stuff, we went over there. Barb and I took a trip over with some of the missionaries and we met uh, this family, uh, Adru Sinkivichus. I'm sure that's easy for us all to say. I, I worked at it real hard, but he's a really neat little guy. A little guy, he's about this tall, <laughs> but, uh, but he's a great warrior for Christ. And he's the pastor of the Bible Baptist Church of Vilnius, Lithuania. And uh, while we were there, and we, we struck up a, a, good, uh, a good fellowship there, and he invited me to come back, which I did on a couple of occasions to teach in their Bible Institute and do some other things. And uh, we began to see also their ministry to the orphans. And I had never seen anything like it. I'd never really heard anything about these kinds of things. It's, 
similar to what, we're, what, what I'm talking about here with this Romanian orphanage. It might not have been quite that, that dire uh, and drastic at the time that I was there, but at the same time, I didn't realize some things. I didn't, when, when I think orphan, I think of parents have died, all right, and so the child is orphaned. Well, in Eastern Europe, and this may well be widespread, I don't know, uh, but in Eastern Europe, there are a lot of these orphanages simply because the parents could not take care of their children. They simply didn't have the means to do it, and so they would turn them over to the orphanage. The orphanages originally would have belonged to probably one of the churches, either the Orthodox or the Catholic, depending on where you were, uh, those kinds of things. And then eventually, as these these countries got taken over by the Soviet Union, they became state-run primarily, and now there's kind of a mixture of these things from what I understand there. Uh, but a lot of those children are not what, what I would think of as an orphan. They haven't lost their parents in that sense. But it's, it's, a, it's a heart-wrenching thing to see that the parents, when they turn them over, they take their hands off and walk away. From the experiences that I uh, had there, the people that I talked to there, uh, they, they never found out who their biological parents were. Uh, one of the pastor's sons married one of those orphan girls, and they're, they're serving the Lord over there now, and she has no idea who her biological parents were. And uh, she doesn't really pursue that because it's just not the way they do things. And uh, so it's just a different kind of idea. But as, as you're thinking about that, you know, I'm, you know what, a, what a horrible circumstance to be thrown into. But this young man had some hope come to him. He couldn't get out of there. He couldn't pack up and leave uh, Romania and come to America or go somewhere else where he could have a better life. That just wasn't, wasn't available to him. But someone saw his plight. Someone took a trip to Romania. And they said they looked through all the children there and they saw his face and they just couldn't take their eyes off of him for some reason. Whatever reason. And they ended up adopting this young man. What a wonderful thing that is. And they brought him to America. And his eyes were huge and he was just thrilled with all the things that he was seeing and experiencing for the first time in his life at seven years old. As I said, I'd had enough preparation by the time I was seven years old to understand that I was a sinner, that I was on my way to hell, and there was nothing I could do about it in myself, but that Jesus had come and that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins. I understood all of that by age seven because I'd been taught it all my life up to that point. I had heard it from the pulpit every Sunday, every Wednesday night. I'd heard this message over and over and over. And finally, when I was seven, the same age that Daniel gets to leave Romania, at that age, I, I had to accept Christ as my Savior. I had to. I just had to. Uh, I, I think a lot of you probably understand what I'm talking about. I, I don't remember a lot of details. I was only seven. All right, give me a break. <laughs> I don't even have the date or the time. I don't have that written down. I believe it was a Sunday morning service, so it was probably Sunday morning. That's all I know, okay? <laughs> but I remember that over a period of services hearing the gospel, I, 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 I got really nervous because all of this was beginning to make sense to me. And it wasn't a pretty picture, the first half of it at least. And I wasn't quite at the second half yet where all I had to do was call on the name of the Lord so I could be saved. But I was under conviction. I felt it hard. I think there were fingerprints in the pew in front of me after those few weeks because I was holding on so tightly. 
And our pastor that, at that time would, would have an altar call at the end of the service, like Pastor Burgraff invites people to go over to these doors if they want to receive Christ as Savior, if they need some counseling or whatever. Uh, he would call people to come to the front in, in the same way. And this day, I was standing just inside my mother on the, in, in the pew, and as he made the, the appeal for anyone who needed, he wanted to be saved, you know, I tugged on her skirt, and I said, Mom, I need to go. Well, she got confused. <laughs> And she said, not now, son. This is the most important time of the service. (laughs) And I remember turning to her and tugging even harder on her skirt and saying, I have to go right now. Well, she gave in to that, stepped out into the center aisle, and I stepped out into the center aisle, and I started to the front, and she started to the back. (laughs) But I rem- and of course she saw what was going on and ah comes running back down and uh, she's a little excitable but <laughs> but I remember the 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 need the urgency and I don't want to be too crass but that's exactly what my mother confused it for it was that that urgent I must go now and I came and the pastor began to deal with me and 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 show me again the truths from the Bible, and it was probably of the Lord that my mother went towards the back, because that gave me a little time to get alone with the pastor. (laughs) Mom liked to be in charge of everything. So (laughs) it might have been more confusing. Who knows? But anyway, the pastor took me off to the side, and he showed me again how I could know for sure that that my sins were forgiven, and I was on my way to heaven. And I asked the Lord to save me as as a seven-year-old boy. Freedom, right? And not freedom from horrible bondage of sin. I was only seven. (laughs) How much trouble can I get into, right? (laughs) But I knew down in my heart that I was a sinner. I knew that. And I knew I couldn't do anything about it myself. I needed Jesus to do it for me. And he had done it. And all I had to do was call on him. And he would save me at the same age that Daniel came to the States. And they said Daniel had about a six-month kind of a honeymoon period where everything was going just great, you know. He was having a blast. And then all of a sudden, some things started cropping up. And they they couldn't quite understand what the problem was. Well, you have to think it through from the end back. Now looking, if if you look at the whole story and you look back, you kind of go, oh, of course. He had no idea how to deal with people. (laughs) None. He'd never had to deal with people. He'd been isolated. He'd been in, in a darkness, if you will, for seven and a half years of his life, stuck in a crib, sleeping, sitting up. I can't imagine. I really can't. Um, (laughs) So issues began cropping up. The parents really didn't know how to deal with it either because their experience was completely different. Their experience was like ours. You're just normal American people. They're going around living their life and children don't act like this. Children don't do this for no reason. You know, he started hitting people. He started throwing things. And later they come to find out that he had, had got confused about the whole parent thing, okay? He, he didn't know about his biological parents. He didn't even know that there was a thing, all right? So his confusion when these are my parents, and someone told him, you were in the orphanage because your parents abandoned you. He put that on them. He put that on his adoptive parents because they were the only parents that he knew of. So he's confused. He hated them now. You subjected me to that for seven and a half years. Things got crazy. 
And they went through all kinds of things as, as the years went by, as he was growing, and he was getting worse and worse. And they found some psychologists and psychiatrists that would try to help them, and they even gave it a name. They said it was attention de- deficit disorder. And he had never bonded with anyone. He didn't know how to, but they didn't understand why. They couldn't see it because there, were, there was this great chasm between them and the American life. A lot of you have been to the mission field on a, on a visit, and you get a taste, right? You get a taste. I was there in the military for three years in the Azor Islands of Portugal, and I thought, I've adapted. We're going to go back as missionaries. We, we figured all that out, you know? And we're going to go back, and everything's going to be so smooth because we've already been here, and we already know. The thing is, when we were there for those three years... Who do we hang out with? Americans. <laughs> Where do we buy our groceries? Mostly on the American base, you see. When we wanted some American food, we would go to the restaurant on the base and have we liked we liked the cultural experience. That was fun. You go down and have a Portuguese steak, that's outstanding. Get some fish with the head on and the eyes and the whole bit. Great. You know, that was cool. We were Portuguese. <laughs> so we went back as missionaries and we went back to the same island to start with, and there were already two Baptist, Portuguese Baptist churches on the island, so we knew we weren't planning to stay there. We wanted to branch out where there were no Baptist churches, well, no churches at all other than the Catholic Church. And uh, so, But the first year or so, we were there studying the language. We are working with the military church and witnessing to Portuguese people and trying to learn the language and all those kinds of wonderful things. And uh, now we've, surely we've, we've got it now, you know. We're going to move over to this other island, the island of St. George, St. George Island. We're going to move over there. We've got it now. We've got it figured out. We're really Portuguese now. We speak the language a little bit. Yeah, but for that whole year, we've been spending a lot of time with Americans. You see, Scott got hit by a car and uh, scary time, but he was okay. But we had to take him to the hospital. We were not allowed to use base facilities because we weren't military. I drove on the base and took him to the American hospital. I took him to the military hospital. Drove up to the emergency room and I said, I'm not military. I'm American. I want you to help my son. And they said, okay, you'll have to pay. I said, I don't care. I was still kind of American. See? So you make a trip over to another place and you get exposed to it, you get a good taste of it. So I'm not telling you not to do it. I think it's a great experience, but, but don't think that that's closed up the gap. All right? So when you think of someone who's over there, who is one of them, <laughs> truly one of them, try to think of it in that light. They've not been exposed to what you've been exposed to, and you've not been exposed to what they've been exposed to. And when it comes to the gospel, they probably haven't heard it nearly as much as you have. There's a lot of people around you that you can say that about. I'm sure. So Daniel has all these problems. He has all these issues and it's getting worse. They find him another young man who has the same disorder. Attention, well, not attention deficit, it's uh, attachment. I'm sorry, attachment deficit disorder. It's a little different from the attention thing, right? It's attachment. You don't know, right? Attachment deficit disorder. And they find this other young man, and this young man has made great strides, and so they put him together, and this is going to be your mentor. In about a month, the mentor killed somebody. These people are distraught now. These people do not know what to do. And a psychologist comes along, or a psychiatrist, I can't remember which, who has a great idea. 
What you're going to do is you're going to force him to love you. This boy needs some tough love. (laughs) You're going to force him to love you. And they're like, well, how do we do that? (laughs) Well, you make sure he does everything you tell him to because it's good for him. Well, how do we do that? If you have to slap him, you slap him. And he needs a lot of your attachment. He needs to be attached to you. So if he's acting up, you grab him and you hold him down and restrain him until he gets over it. How many of you think that's a great idea? I don't know where this guy came from or anything. They sort of looked into it a little bit and finally said, that can't be right. Do you think you can make someone love you? We try, don't we? (laughs) We really do. Do you think you can make someone love Jesus? You ever think about that? Just a thought. But that's what this guy thought could happen. Finally, they found somebody who had a different idea. And this man said, this is radical. And he said, but I've been studying it. I've been trying it. He said, if you're willing to try it, I'll back you up with it. We'll see what we can do. He said, I need you to quit your job for a while, ma'am. I need you to pull him out of school for a while. You're going to spend every waking moment together for about three months. And they were desperate. So they did whatever it took to make this happen. He said, I don't want you to be more than three feet apart at any time during this period of time. So they didn't. If he would go to the bathroom, she would stand outside the door. If she went to the bathroom, he would have to stand outside the door. All day long, they were three feet feet away from each other or closer. If she had to hand him something, he had to look her in the eyes directly before she would hand the, the thing to She said sometimes it would take 20 minutes or a half an hour for him to receive the object she was trying to hand him before he would make eye contact. And this went on for three months. In the middle of this, they started trying to push a little farther. And they would sit, all three of them, on the couch, husband, wife, and Daniel. And, they, and, and, and she would reach over and take Daniel. And she would pull him over and hug him. And hug him to the point of bringing him down onto her lap. Not restraining him. But pulling him down onto her lap. And basically would lap over onto the husband's lap, lap as well. And she said he didn't like it at first. But he, he, he went with it. And after a while, he started liking it. And we would just sit like that. And watch TV. But there was contact. There was attachment. So the person interviewing her asked this question, so you made him love you? And she said, no, <laughs> no. Does he love you? She said, he says he does. That's all I know. But he's not trying to kill me. <laughs> and he wants to be around me. And he does things for me. He doesn't run away. He doesn't act up. I see the psychologist <laughs> In a, in, a, in a sense, kind of like the Apostle Paul or anyone else who tries to nudge people towards Jesus Christ. I really think that's the ministry of reconciliation, in all honesty. We want to beat people over the head with it. I want people to get saved. Either we want it, want it so bad that we beat people over the head with it, or we just get to the point of, you know, they're so different. They don't think like I do. They may be here in America. They may be somewhere overseas. And you can't even possibly think about them because they're so different and there's probably no hope for them because they don't think like I do. What's the point? What's the point? And this lady and her husband could have thought that way about that child. They were encouraged to do so many times. They were encouraged to just send him off. This will never work. But they said, no, we love him. 
We don't understand him. <laughs> He's not like us. <laughs> He's got some issues that we just can't get our heads wrapped around. Do you feel that way about lost people? Do you feel that way about people all around the world? When we went to that other island over there in the Azores, and we landed thinking we're all the way Portuguese, and there was no other human being on the rock that spoke English. <laughs> there was not a supermarket on that rock. I'm just talking about the living situation. <laughs> all right? That's just the minor stuff, but it's big when, it's, when it hits you like that. There was a tiny little store that you had to brush the dust off the cans because nobody bought canned goods. And you had to pay like four or five dollars for a can of peas or something. Everybody grew their own or had friends that did or there was some sort of cooperative thing going on. We didn't know anybody and nobody knew us. And all of a sudden, boom, we're isolated. (laughs) We're isolated. We're not Portuguese after all. We find out the religious aspects of it. We knew some. I mean, you study it. You go to to Bible college and you learn about it. And and we'd been there some. And I've read books. And and then you get there and see it in real life. And you go, oh, I've never, I can't even, I don't think like this. I just can't even wrap my head around it. And so what do you do? You just give up and walk away. Right? Unless... You really love them. Regardless of what the differences might be, regardless of their culture, regardless of the fact that they may hate you, like Daniel hated his parents for a while. Really doesn't have anything to do with it, does it? The Bible tells us very clearly that we were enemies of God. And while we were yet sinners... Christ did a whole lot more for us than we'll ever do for anyone probably. He died for us. And someone along the way nudged me toward Christ. They didn't beat me over the head about it. They didn't give up on me because I hadn't gotten saved yet. They just kept nudging me. And Paul talks about these folks there in the end of uh, of that chapter, First Thessalonians 2, he says, For what is our hope? Or joy? Or crown of rejoicing? Or not even ye at the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Who? People who had a different culture from him. Probably spoke a different language. Their religious background was totally different. There were some Jews there, but there were a bunch of others that were not. Not even monotheistic. Completely different in every possible way. We like to think about the crown, and there's nothing wrong with that. I I like the idea of being rewarded by the Lord. I do, for faithful service. We've slogged through some things and felt like we were being martyrs. When in reality, we were just unjust servants the whole while. And I like to think that maybe there's a reward for that. And then when I really stop and think about it, and when I read this here, the crown's mentioned, and that's wonderful, but it's a crown of rejoicing. And what does he say before that? You're our hope. You, who are so different from me and us, 
But I see what can happen if I will take the little light that I have and present it to you. And I see how nudging you towards Christ can actually make a difference to where at least some people in that city will bow their knee to Jesus Christ. You're my hope. My hope of the ministry is exactly that. Is that somewhere along the way I can nudge somebody toward Christ. My hope as a Christian who has been sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ to go and preach the gospel, regardless of whether I'm a pastor or a missionary or whatever, my hope is this, that some have heard and received the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings a joy. That if I never get a reward and never get a crown, I'm doing okay. I wonder if we see it as a joyous thing. Oh, we will, we will. We will rejoice in, you know, hearing about people coming to know Christ. I know we will rejoice in that. But I wonder if that's the thing that really motivates us in our daily life. The lady in the story, Daniel's adoptive mother, at the end of the story, the interviewer is asking her, you you say you couldn't make him love you. She said no. But he did stand up at his graduation and declare to the world that he loves his mom and dad for all they've done for him. He said, did that make it all worthwhile? She said, I didn't need it. It was nice. It was nice. (laughs) But I didn't need it. Because I saw him change. I saw the difference when he got attached to us. Does it fill you with joy? Or are you just looking for applause and a crown? I don't know, whatever. (laughs) Are you looking for somebody to pat you on the back? Good job. Brought another one to Christ. Oh boy. Or is there just this deep, settled joy in your heart of whether the person has come to know Christ or not, but you've got to just kind of nudge them that way a little bit. I think that's what it's about. I think, I think Jesus said it very well. He usually does. Now, before I, before I get to this part, I, mean, I have to bring up the other part. I know that we hear all the time, touch not you know, the world, don't be a friend of the world. All very true. <laughs> All very true. But I'm afraid sometimes that we get so fundamentalist that we forget that there's some people out there that are hurting and they're in the darkness and, they're, and they need somebody to touch them. I'm not saying do what they do. I'm not saying get yourself messed up in sin. And if you're a young person here, you talk to your parents before you get involved in anything. <laughs> and your parents hopefully have enough wisdom to guide you in that. But are we afraid to get out there and get dirty with them a little bit? Here, where it should be as comfortable as anywhere in the world, or possibly to pick up and go somewhere else where you don't understand it all, where you don't get it. I could tell you story after story after story of things that I don't understand to this day why Portuguese people do it that way. Doesn't make any sense to me, but it doesn't have to. (laughs) And it shouldn't stop us from nudging them toward Christ. Jesus, sure, talked about 
not loving the world. The, the, the disciples, the, the apostles who wrote, talked about not loving the world and staying pure and undefiled. And all those things are absolutely true. But Jesus, as he gave his high priestly prayer, right before he was being crucified, he said this, I've given them your word, talking to his father, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. That's just an automatic thing, right? I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What? What? If you don't want me to be tainted by the world, why don't you just take me out of it? Well, okay, don't take me to heaven, but at least let me sit in a good church. And don't make me go anywhere else where I might get dirty. But he said, I do not ask you, Father, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one while they're out there in it. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then he says these words, which is the gospel message, which is the great commission here in the book of John. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world in that way, you see. Jesus got real dirty in this world. Jesus came to a place where every custom was opposed to him, where every thought was evil continually. And yet he loved us so much that he came and among other things nudged us toward the Father with the truth. A pastor was talking this morning in Sunday school um, about the difference between Jesus and Herod and those contrasts, you know, in the character of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus had some harsh words for some people, religious guys mostly. When it came to sinners, he was without sin. A number of passages declare that. We know that to be true. And yet he was with sinners almost all the time. Father, don't take them out of the world. Just sanctify them. Set them apart in the truth. Don't let them slip away from that. Don't let them do things that will go against that. Your word is the truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified, set apart, made holy in truth. I'm not preaching against personal sanctification and purity. It's super important. (laughs) But where does it take us? Does it take us to a position of isolation? When we got to the Azores, especially to San Azores, there was nobody else there preaching the gospel. Nobody else. I had to sit with my family in that little house and preach. Week after week after week. And my family got sick of it. (laughs) But I couldn't go out and grab somebody and drag them in and say, you're going to hear this and you're going to get saved. All I could do was just step out of the house and my wife and my children and go out there and rub shoulders with them. Do some of the things that they did that we could do. Learn a little bit of the way they think and just try to nudge them a little more and a little more towards Jesus until they found that attachment themselves, which some of them did. 
And that's my joy. I don't want that joy to end here on this earth. I'm certainly not the example of it. I'm not setting myself up as one. I'm just trying to help you to think, think this through a little bit. Where are you today? Have you come as I did as a seven-year-old boy with all the great privileges of being able to be in a place like this and hear the Word of God and hear the message of salvation? Have you ever come to make that personal in your own life? Please do that today if you haven't. This is it. This is the time right now. You don't have to say certain words. You don't have to join this church. You don't have to do any kind of a ritual. What you have to do is believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and that he did it for you. Are we getting that message to those who are sitting in darkness, looking off into the distance, thinking there must be something that will satisfy my soul?